Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit Goyal. Can't wait to dive into this phenomenal case report presented by colleagues at Cedar sinai a program that we are proud to have on the Healy Honor Roll of programs that support the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. In this challenging and sobering case, we learn about a 46-year-old woman presenting with sudden cardiac arrest and discuss a systematic differential approach for sudden cardiac arrest, the initial management following resuscitation, and then discover a peculiar cause that led to her arrest. Friends, remember that CardiNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Make sure you claim free CME credit for this episode. And as always, any relevant speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. And please help others find us by rating and reviewing the show. And now, let's get nerdy. Thanks for joining us for a trip back to the beautiful city of Los Angeles where we get to learn about a great case from our colleagues and co-fellows from Cedars sinai Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. In a moment, I'd like to ask you guys to introduce yourselves, Stockers, Lily Stern, Natasha Chuk, and Paul Marano. Before they do, though, I just want to say that we're so honored to have Cedar sinai as part of the CardioNerds Healy Honor Roll, or the list of programs who continue to support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. And as part of that relationship, it's been such a privilege to continue working with Natasha as the ambassador from the program. So guys, welcome to the show and please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Natasha Chuck. I'm a second year cardiology fellow, rising third year at Cedar sinai and chief fellow. I've been in L.A. for most of all of my training. I've been at UCLA for med school and residency and then now Cedar sinai for cardiology fellowship. I'm interested in electrophysiology, so that's my next step. Hi, I'm Lily Stern. I'm from Berkeley, California, and I completed medical school and residency at UCSF prior to coming to Cedars for cardiology fellowship. And I'm now at the end of my second year with Natasha. I plan to go into advanced heart failure and transplantation, and I'm particularly interested in cardiac amyloidosis. Outside of the hospital, I love to sing and play music with friends and family, and I love being in nature, which we are so fortunate to do so much of here in L.A. Awesome. And I'm Paul Ron. I'm from New York originally. I went to Harvard for med school before making my way out west to UCSF for residency and then moving down here to L.A. I'm really interested in critical care cardiology, and I hope to do some translational and clinical research as part of that. And outside the hospital, love playing guitar and watching soccer. Lily, Natasha, Paul, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is so exciting. We're really excited to have you and see you again, Natasha. And it's summertime. We're getting close to summertime. And we are just so excited for the sun. So please take us to your favorite spot, L.A., and let's settle down for a nice chat about cardiology. Great. So we're actually on the beach. We all love living really close to the ocean. So we're at one of our favorite spots. We're on the beach right near uh, Will Rogers State Park. We won't tell you exactly where because we found a great spot with free and not so crowded street parking. So not exactly where, but we're by that park. And there's a little Airstream right off Route 1 there that sells smoothies and coffee. So we grabbed some coffee and smoothies. We're on the beach. The waves are crashing in and we're ready to chat cardiology. I was hoping you guys would say that. So, you know, I, I went to UCSD, San Diego for medical school. I love everything about Southern California. Went to Baltimore Hopkins for residency. But when I interviewed for cardiology fellowship at Cedar sinai actually with my co-residents, uh, Richa and Ben, who both had been on CardioNerds, we finished the day after a wonderful interview at the program, totally blown away. We went to the Santa Monica Pier, had some margaritas, and just, you know, walked into the sunset down the beach. It was absolutely gorgeous. So let's do that again and recreate that wonderful moment uh, and talk about some cardiology, guys. What's your case? So Paul and Natasha, imagine you are the consult fellow and you are called by the neuro ICU to evaluate a patient who came into the hospital the day after a ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest. And their consult question for you is for ischemic evaluation. So our patient is a 46-year-old woman who had been out of care, no known medical problems, who was transported to the emergency department after sustaining a cardiac arrest at home. Her daughter heard her fall in the other room, found her unresponsive, called 911. Emergency medical services arrived within five minutes, and the initial rhythm was ventricular fibrillation. So they initiated CPR, and they had to shock her twice, ultimately received return of spontaneous circulation, and, and then transported her to the emergency room. 
So from talking to her family, it sounds like she was diagnosed with diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia about 10 years prior, but had been out of care. She had no surgical history, no known family history of any sudden cardiac arrest or death at a young age, no heart problems. She wasn't taking any medications. She didn't have any allergies. She was married with three children and no use of tobacco, alcohol, or drugs. So on arrival to the emergency room, she was a febrile. Her heart rate was 132. Blood pressure was 184 over 112. She was satting 99% on 100% FiO2 with a supraglottic airway in place. She was tachycardic with a regular rhythm without any murmurs or extra heart sounds. She had a normal jugular venous pressure. Lungs were clear to auscultation. Extremities were warm without any edema. So you ultimately track down the post-ROS ECG from the field. And here it is, Natasha. Why don't you describe to our listeners what you're seeing and what you would be looking for in a post-ROS ECG? So on this ECG, I see sinus tachycardia. She's got a borderline left axis. And as far as ST changes, I don't see any real significant ST elevations, ST depressions, Q waves. If I'm really looking closely, the inferior leads maybe look a bit concerning for some submillimeter ST elevations. And AVL, I have. I don't have lead one. And maybe there's a reciprocal change there. But the baseline kind of has an artifact and wander. So I would be really curious to see what the repeat in the ER looks like. And beyond that, I'm looking for abnormalities of conduction intervals, electrical axis, and T-way morphology that might provide clues to the etiology, both for ischemia and then, you know, other things. So I don't see any conduction abnormalities like a bundle branch block or AV block that might accompany a large anterior MI or inferior MI, respectively. There is an incomplete right bundle, but there's no right axis deviation or other EKG findings of right heart strain that would be potentially suggestive of a PE. There's no evidence for primary arrhythmia. I don't see any QTC prolongation or a short QT, no Brugada pattern. And then nothing as far as an electrolyte abnormality that could be reflected in the ECG, like PTs, again, short QT, no cardiomyopathic pattern. I mean, there are some borderline low voltages, but again, I'd be curious to see what the repeat would look like in the ER. I don't have anything intelligent to add to that, but I just wanted to observe that this was one of the best post-arrest EKG reads I've heard because you went through your typical systematic approach to reading EKG so you don't miss anything. But then you went back and said, look, these are the things that would indicate a predisposition to having an arrest. And I'm looking for the pertinent negatives as well. So that was awesome. And I'm going to write that down so uh, I can think about that the next time I see a patient like this. Thanks, Latasha. Ditto to that. And also recognizing at the same time that an ECG is a snapshot in time. And this is the post-arrest ECG, which could give us clues, as you pointed to, alluded to things that would set up for an arrest, like ischemia, electrolyte abnormalities, but then also recognizing that sometimes we may not see the underlying cause of an arrest on ECG, but that doesn't mean we should be reassured. So that was awesome. Thanks. So you actually ended up going and reviewing the ECG that was obtained in the emergency department, and it really just showed sinus tachycardia. Those subtle ST elevations that you had noticed before resolved with an improved baseline and, and was essentially normal besides the sinus tachycardia. So here we now have the chest X-ray that was obtained in the ED. Paul, can you describe what we're seeing and what you're looking for? Yeah, definitely. So on a post-arrest X-ray, I think taking a cue from Natasha, I've been thinking about, are there any signs of an acute process that may give a clue to the etiology of the arrest. And the other thing, just looking for any lines and tubes that we're using to support her, are they well positioned and sort of in the right place? And in terms of looking for clues of an etiology, I've been looking for signs of acute heart failure, a pneumothorax, things that would jump out. And I think here on this x-ray, we see some low lung volumes and some mild interstitial opacities, but no freight pulmonary edema, no pneumothorax, no signs of an acute process. And just, just the low lung volumes and the mildly increased interstitial markings. She has the endotracheal tube and an OG tube, which look appropriately placed. Great. So now, Natasha, we have a list of her initial labs. Walk us through what's jumping out at you in this clinical context. So I see her chemistry as a normal sodium. Her potassium's low normal at 3.6. The other electrolytes are normal. She does have a bit of an anion gap metabolic acidosis and a bicarb of 16. But this isn't surprising given that she's post-arrest. She's got a lactate of 8.1. And we can see that the trend six hours later is 1.1. So with perfusion restored, it looks like that rapidly resolved. She has normal kidney function, hyperglycemia with a glucose in the 300s. That might be reflective of uncontrolled diabetes and or acutely elevated in the setting of stress. She has a transaminase elevation with an overall hepatocellular pattern. My guess at this point is that that would be potentially the onset of shock liver. Her synthetic function, though, in albumin is normal, so less likely that she has some chronic liver disease. 
Her white count is 12, again, possibly stress. She's anemic with a hemoglobin of 10.5 and a low MCV. Her troponin trend is as I would expect for someone suffering a cardiac arrest of some kind with a low, mild leak. But there's interestingly nothing suggestive of an ischemic event. You know, she goes from a less than 0.01 on admission to 0.13 at two hours and then 0.08 at 12 hours. Her BNP is normal, which doesn't rule out heart failure, especially, you know, in the setting, but does make me think less likely that she might have some underlying cardiomyopathy. Her D-dimer is elevated. That's nonspecific in the context of her arrest, but it looks like they did a CTPA in the ER and that was negative. Then notably, she also has a negative utox and her alcohol level was negative. So it's now hospital day two, and the patient was initially cooled and is now rewarmed in the neuro ICU. She demonstrated full neurologic recovery and has now been extubated. She denies any current symptoms and cannot recall the events leading up to her sudden cardiac arrest. So Natasha, can you walk us through how you think about sudden cardiac arrest in general and how that applies to our patient? What are your next steps in your diagnostic workup to narrow your differential diagnosis for her? So she presented with a sudden cardiac arrest. That is essentially cessation of cardiac activity that causes sudden unresponsiveness without a pulse. And you can kind of categorize these into buckets. There's acute ischemic events, structural heart disease, arrhythmogenic syndromes that don't have structural heart disease associated, and then non-cardiac causes such as drugs, toxins, trauma, metabolic derangements. As far as the ischemic causes of sudden cardiac arrest, you can have ACS due to plaque rupture, embolization, SCAD, transient ischemia due to vasospasm, or even compression of an anomalous coronary artery with a malignant course. From a structural perspective, you could have scar-mediated reentry in any cardiomyopathy or, you know, something specific like ARVD or repaired congenital disease. From the inflammatory group, you know, any number of things like sarcoid, Chagas, myocarditis, and then primary arrhythmogenic etiologies, things like pre-excitation, channelopathies, idiopathic VF. With her EKG, I don't see any evidence of a primary arrhythmia. The metabolic workup we looked through and there was no clear culprit. History and utox was not concerning for any drugs or toxins, and we know she didn't have a traumatic event. So really, my next step would be thinking about an ischemic evaluation for her. She did have a VFRS, and she has some traditional risk factors. Outside of that, I'd also be thinking more about a structural evaluation. I think the best first test, no matter where we are, be it thinking about her a day later or in the ER while we're setting things up for potentially an emergent ischemic evaluation, would be an echo. Great. So we do have some echo images here. So, Paul, why don't you walk us through what you're seeing on this echo and what you're looking for? Yeah, definitely. So I think as Natasha mentioned, it'll be really helpful to our differential in this patient who had a EFRS to think about, is there structural heart disease or not here? And so on the echo, we can look for signs of, um, well, I'm not that would suggest an acute ischemic etiology or signs of a cardiomyopathy, be it myocarditis, pox-related, infiltrative, some other structural heart disease that could be contributing to her arrest, which will help to categorize etiologies of BS. We can also look for other possible causes for her arrest, including tamponade, which could both be a cause of her arrest or even a complication of her resuscitation. And then we can look for RV dysfunction to suggest PE, although in our case, we already have the CT that did not show that. So here we'll start off with the, you know, the periscope long view, and we can see, I'd say, borderline normal to so low normal LV function, and the RBOT seems to be contracting well with normal valve morphology. And then in the apical fortune review that we have, we can, again, see low normal LV function with normal RV function. I think the question that comes up is in the context of this post-arrest setting, is this mildly reduced LV function signal or noise? So does this show us signs of some underlying process that preceded her arrest, or is this mild dysfunction uh, just a consequence of her post-arrest state? Amazing. Thank you so much, Paul. So, you know, Natasha mentioned earlier that she wanted to do an ischemic evaluation. So how do you think about ischemic evaluation after cardiac arrest, both timing and modality? And what do you specifically want to do for this patient? Yeah. So here, in this case, we got the call from the neuro ICU team a day after her arrival. But often in taking care of these patients, we're called in the immediate post-arrest setting in the emergency department. And the very first question is, when? right? So do we whisk these patients off to the cath lab on arrival or do we manage them with targeted temperature management, supportive measures until there's neurologic recovery? Um, of course, assuming that we don't see a STEMI or a worsening shock on their initial presentation. 
So this year, having to struggle with this question for patients in the ER, I thought about this by a sort of tension between two ideas. So on the one hand, we have that acute coronary syndrome is a relatively common cause of arrest, particularly VTVF arrest. And if that's the case, early revascularization will be beneficial for these patients. On the other hand, many patients who come in with resuscitated arrest ultimately, unfortunately, die of neurologic complications related to their arrest. And the timing of revascularization might not affect their survival or neurologic recovery, and in some cases may lead to delays in other aspects of their care, like effective targeted temperature management. So regarding evidence around this question, there's been some exciting recent action and, and more trials are ongoing. Previously, we just had observational data that showed that there may be a survival benefit to immediate revascularization, although there was concern about the impact of a selection bias there. Maybe the patients who were most likely to benefit from revascularization were the ones who had emergent angiography. So in the past couple of years, there's been two randomized control trials published in 2019 and 2020, the COACT and PEARL trials, both of which have their own limitations, but neither has been able to show a benefit in terms of survival or neurologic outcomes for immediate angiography. So ultimately, we don't have strong RCT evidence to recommend immediate angiography as a rule for all post-ETVF patients, and again, excluding patients who have STEMI post-ROSC or orzenic shock. So in our patient, we'd have to balance a suspicion for ACS against the, the neurologic prognosis and other aspects of her post-arrest care. So balancing the fact that she had this VF arrest, she has uh, risk factors for CAD and her relatively short downtime before she was resuscitated. Thinking back to that initial question, which is not our question now, I might have advocated for emergent angiography for her if, if we had been asked that question at the time. And just to, to think about how the guidelines help us here, the last guidelines we have from here are from before those randomized control trials, and they give a 2A nod to emergency angiography being reasonable. So back to our current situation. And the question now is how to evaluate for ischemia. And traditionally, we would plan for an invasive coronary angiogram to diagnose and, and also potentially treat unstable culprit lesions. And I would say, again, given her our pretest probability with her VF arrest risk factors is you know, on, on the higher side, I would advocate for an invasive coronary angiogram for her. I think another reasonable alternative, though, would be a coronary CTA. Um, we didn't hear about any coronary calcifications on the CTPE protocol that would limit our interpretation. And this is also a highly sensitive test that would avoid an upfront invasive procedure for her and would give us the other benefit of maybe helping with some other information. So we could see other cardiopulmonary pathology that we wouldn't see with an invasive angiogram. And then, as Natasha mentioned, an anomaly is on the differential, coronary anomaly. And so um, this would be the test of choice to help investigate that. Great. Yeah. And I want to just echo something that Paul just said that, you know, looking at the CT chest that she got in the emergency room, although it's not dedicated imaging for the heart, it does help look for some important coronary clues such as coronary calcifications or evaluation of anomalous origin of the coronary arteries. And this information can help provide helpful diagnostic information as well as provide more information to decide on the need for invasive versus non-invasive coronary angiography for ischemic evaluation. So just as you outlined, Paul, we did end up obtaining a coronary CT for this patient, which confirmed no coronary calcifications, no coronary plaque, no other coronary abnormality, and no anomalous coronary artery origin. However, we did find something abnormal in the aorta. So Natasha, I have some images here. Can you please describe to our listeners what you're seeing? So I'm looking at a still image of a filling defect in the ascending aorta in multiple planes. On the top left, I see a sagittal cut of the proximal ascending aorta, and this filling defect looks large. It's linear and arises sort of anterior above the right coronary cusp and near where I would expect the RCA ostium to be. So this is confirmed on the vertical long axis view of the heart and a short axis cut through the aorta. On the 3D reconstruction, you can see that filling defect or abnormality kind of arise just above the RCA ostium. Just want to remind the audience that you definitely want to check out these images. They're going to be posted on our website and uh, you could totally follow along. Obviously, uh, usual disclaimer, don't do it while you're driving, but feel free to pull over at the safe area and check these out. You, you can see the still images as well as the running video format of them as well. So you can get a full appreciation of the 3D, almost like booger looking like thing here that I definitely don't want to see on anybody's imaging. This is the most ominous booger I've ever seen. Three kids, I've seen a lot of boogers. A lot of boogers. This is not one you want to see. It's good on the base. Definitely don't want to see it in the aorta. No, definitely not. And we, we do have some axial scrolls as well. Natasha, can you describe what you're seeing here? 
Yeah, so this first axial scroll, you can see this hypodense linear structure. I mean, it's somewhere on the order of 1, 1.5 centimeters in length. And it looks like, again, it's adherent superior to the RCA cusp and right coronary artery origin. On another scroll with a slightly different axis, you can get a better view of this filling defect and its relationship to the aorta in the wall. It looks truly intraluminal. And in all of these images, I don't see a dissection or hematoma or abnormality of the ascending aorta and wall itself. And the size also looks normal. So it seems to me this might be an intraluminal thrombus, but I'm not quite sure why a thrombus would be there. I'm not sure how it hasn't embolized. It looks like it's attached to the wall. But again, from these images, I'm not sure exactly how that's attached. I wonder if it's mobile or what we could see on some Cine images. So, Lily, did you talk to the imaging department? Did you get a look at some Cine images? Yes, um, actually, we, we have such incredible imaging colleagues here in our cardiology department at Cedars. And at the time, I went down to review the images with them, and they were able to review these Cine images that demonstrated this very large mobile thrombus that intermittently extended down right above the right coronary ostium. And I also just wanted to take a step back here to just take a moment to recognize how fortunate it was that we actually decided to go the route of coronary CT rather than an invasive ischemic evaluation, because we very well could have flicked off this large thrombus with our catheters and caused a catastrophic embolization, and we would not have been able to have clearly identified this aortic pathology at the time. I was literally thinking the same thing, and as an interventional person, I was like, breathing a sigh of relief alongside your interventional colleagues. Right. I think it's a humbly reminder how, how hard it can be to take care of these patients. Just as I was kind of looking back with hindsight and wondering if the optimal test would have been upfront an emergent coronary angiography, it turns out that that probably would have been harmful for, for her instead. So I think a good reminder of just how, how humbling this can be. And Lily, I'm curious, did you see anything on the CT from the ER? Because she did get a CT with PE protocol. Yeah, she did. And we actually went down and reviewed that with the radiologist. And it turns out that you could see something very slight there, but it really looked like artifact. And it was because the slice thickness was too large. So having that thinner section, we were able to see it clearly on the coronary CT. So we'll talk about management in a little. But first, Paul, are there any other further diagnostic steps or, or diagnostic workup that we should obtain at this point? Yeah, so then the, the finding of this, you know, large thrombus in the aorta and this high flow aorta is very abnormal. So I'd be thinking about, you know, how best to get more information about um, the aortic wall and what might predispose her to, to this finding. So I think I'd be talking to both our imaging colleagues and also to our cardiothoracic surgeons who, who deal with more acute aortic syndromes than we do to get help with both management, like you said, but also next steps in, in diagnosis. So I wonder if maybe MRI might be helpful to better characterize um, the aortic wall and look for some underlying process like a dissection that might have predisposed her to this, this thrombus developing. Yeah, Paul, and I just like that, you know, just you already brought up one big part of this, uh, you know, in Verkhoff's triad when we think about thrombogenicity, right? And you said that the aorta is a high flow place. And, you know, we know that one of the corners of this triangle is the stasis of blood flow and we don't expect stasis here. Obviously, the other two parts are endothelial injury, which we sounds like we may be investigating. And then also, obviously, we're going to be looking for hypercoagulable states. But definitely, those are the things that come to my mind when I see a thrombus, particularly in this setting, like in such a, a weird, odd space. Where did it come from? Definitely is not something that's normal or as common as other kinds of thrombosis like uh, VTE on the venous side, which is far more common. So I'm very interested to hear about your next workup. Yeah, this is really interesting, right? Because the, the hypercoagulable causes in Verkhoff's triad will probably be similar in other types of thrombus, right? In terms of malignancy or hypercoagulable states, inflammation. You know, for arterial thrombi themselves, we think more maybe malignancy and proxismal nocturnal hemoglobinuria or APLS. But in terms of injury, you know, here we can think about maybe some of the specific causes of local tissue type injury, right? Dissection. Could it be aortitis or something along those lines? And then stasis, you know, I'm not used to thinking about stasis in the aorta. That would be very bad, but there's no reason to suggest this patient would have a low flow state. But a false lumen of a dissection plane that maybe we missed for some reason could maybe have a you know low flow state that could give origin to something like this. 
Yeah. So I think one other thing that's still unclear to us is how do we draw an arrow from this very abnormal finding of this large aortic thrombus to her ultimate VF arrest? And so getting an MRI to characterize the aortic wall, we may also get a cardiac MRI, look for any cardiac abnormality that might explain her arrest. We might see scar, evidence of the cardiomyopathy. We get a better look at her cardiac function, given that she had that low normal function on the initial echo. So possibly give us more information to help connect those arrows as well. Great. So that's exactly what we did. We ended up getting a cardiac MRI and an MRA of the thoracic and abdominal aorta, which unfortunately just re-described the ascending aortic thrombus, but could not definitively rule out a dissection or an intramural hematoma at the site of where the thrombus was originating. But here we have some cine images of the cardiac MRI. Paul, can you describe to our listeners what we're seeing here? Yeah. So on the, on the Sune, it looks like here at this time, we have normal size and normal function of both the left ventricle and right ventricle. So whereas in the echo, initially, immediately post arrest, we saw low normal function here, her LB function looks normal. Great. And then now here are some delayed myocardial enhancement images. What do you see? So looking here on the short axis images, we can see a focal area of subendocardial late gadolinium enhancement. It looks like it's in the basal inferior wall. Yes, exactly. So, and this scar was calculated to be about 4.6% of the myocardial mass and is focal, consistent possibly with the posterior descending artery distribution. And there was normal T2 mapping without evidence of global regional myocardial edema, suggestive against any active inflammation as in myocarditis or an infiltrated disease such as sarcoid. There was no active or recent ischemia or reperfusion injury. The calculated extracellular volume was also in the normal range, suggesting no diffuse fibrosis. So coming back to Natasha, now that we have all this information, what do you think contributed to her ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest? So I'd like to kind of put it together in a problem representation. So to summarize, it's a 46-year-old woman. She has traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease, and she presents with a sudden cardiac arrest with initial rhythm of VF. She didn't have a STEM or significant tremodin elevation on presentation, and the workup done thus far reveals a likely mobile thrombus in her ascending aorta, based on the imaging we have, and a basal inferior scar on MRI. So I honestly can't explain how the thrombus developed, propagated, continues to persist in her ascending aorta. So I'm not going to tackle that just yet, but I can probably try to fit together the abnormal findings that we have, the basal inferior scar and the clot that we know is there, and kind of try to understand the possible mechanisms. So one would be that she had an acute ischemic event. She had a small embolism from this clot down her RCA or occlusion of the ostium of the RCA from this clot. You know, the small embolism might have dissolved and then it resulted in an ischemic VF arrest. The scar that we're seeing is from that prior ischemia. This doesn't really, again, explain how the clot got there in the aorta. And I would have expected a troponin kind of trend to rise and fall if this was an acute ischemic event. So another potential thought is that she has this scar from prior embolism or occlusion of the RCA, and she had maybe a reentrant ventricular arrhythmia around that scar. And that was what caused her arrest. This might have degenerated into V-fib by the time EMS arrived. And that might explain why the trope was just kind of reflective of her arrest, but not maybe acute ischemia. And then, you know, a couple other thoughts without explaining the thrombus. So vasospasm is another thought. Severe vasospasm can result in ischemia or cardiac arrest and even the findings of SCAR, which would be something to think about in a young or middle-aged woman, but doesn't necessarily connect all the dots. And then myocarditis is another thought. Um, With the LG pattern being focal and subendocardial, less likely, and also her troponin elevation was pretty low and flat. But those are two alternate theories. I just want to, first of all, completely compliment you on keeping your differential open and having multiple possibilities and etiologies of drawing the arrows, as Paul said earlier, which, uh, again, I'm definitely stealing that line for other purposes. But, you know, just like thinking about the thrombus and location and remembering that, like, the blood flow during systole goes forward up that aorta, but then comes back down during diastole. And that's when the coronaries are drinking, right? And that is when that thrombus booger is probably dropping, popping right down into the area of that osteum. So I could imagine that, you know, during systole, this thing, because we know it's mobile, or at least we'll probably find out that it's mobile, right? We'll like, kind of shoot forward, but that during diastole can come back down. It can almost act as like a valve to really block blood flow down the coronary artery during the time of filling, which is during diastole. So I could see that. But I, I'd love to just ask you, you know, which one do you think is most likely, I guess, either considering Occam's razor or not? And yeah, let me just ask you, which one of those 
those uh, scenarios do you think is the most likely for this patient? So I kind of favored the scar explanation. You know, this kind of fits with the MRI findings best because, you know, you don't see any regional edema and the LGE likely represents scar. And that reentrant possibility could easily have degenerated to EVF by the time EMS arrived. Yeah, and I do wonder if she had this thrombus previously and she had some sort of embolism prior and was asymptomatic at the time, developed this scar, and then this just suddenly happened. It's just a fascinating discussion. And I guess another option is that, yes, to both of the above, right, she develops the scar from a prior bed, maybe related to the thrombus, but now also has an additional obstruction that kind of makes the tissue more friable and makes that set up for maybe a monomorphic BTRS with the scar as well, like kind of a, a mixture of both. So very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, despite thinking about all of what might have happened to her on her presentation, there's, you know, we really should be thinking also about what might happen next. She's really at risk for embolism and a potentially catastrophic event. So I think the next step for me would be to think about and start anticoagulation. And as part of that, working up for hypercoagulable states, malignancy, you know, and trying to investigate whether or not there are other thrombi. And then calling CT surgery. I'd like to get her to surgery urgently and take care of this thrombus that's at risk for embolization. Yeah, and that's exactly what we did. We initiated a workup for a hypercoagulable state and considered malignancy evaluation. Although we didn't see any suspicious findings for malignancy on her imaging, she had been out of care for about 10 years and had not had any age-appropriate malignancy evaluation. She did have some fibroids in her uterus and with some microcytosis and iron deficiency. But so going on, though, we ultimately did start a heparin drip on her, but we were initially hesitant to do so because of concern for associated aortic dissection with aortic thrombi and, and could not fully rule it out with the imaging that we had. We did speak to cardiothoracic surgery who recommended a TEE to better evaluate the mechanism of the aortic thrombi and just for potentially preoperative planning. You know, one of the things I love about Cedars is actually, you know, I came from a three hospital system and residency, but coming to Cedars, it's one hospital and it's amazing because we all consult on and treat the, the same patients throughout the hospital and kind of rotate around in different services. And at this time, I was on the consult service and Natasha, you were on TEE. Yeah. And I remember coming over into the echo lab and and you were planning to do the TE on this case. And we kind of reviewed the images together and, and we were all just really involved in her care. I, I just love that about Cedars. So, you know, here are the, some of the images that you obtained. So tell us what you're finding here. So this is a mid-esophageal short axis view of the ascending aorta. You can also see the main PA and the right pulmonary artery. And you can see this filling defect in the middle of her ascending aorta. You can see that it's highly mobile. And on X-plane, you can see a long axis view. And it's really just as we kind of described earlier, flipping back and forth from more ascending to descending position. I don't see any atheroma there. I don't see a dissection. It's adherent to the wall, but I still via a short stock, but I still can't see exactly how. And then here's a 3D view of her ascending aorta and that intraluminal thrombus. These are some really scary images. So I would want to immediately regroup with CT surgery and talk about taking her urgently to the OR. Great. So that that's exactly what we did. We talked with a CT surgery who agreed we needed to emergently take her to the OR. And she ended up going the next morning and the intraoperative assessment revealed a small penetrating aortic ulcer with an adherent large thrombus measuring up to 3.5 centimeters in length. The ulcer and thrombus were resected and the aorta was repaired using a bovine pericardial patch. These samples were then sent to PATH, which are, are pending. But I wanted to take a moment to talk about penetrating aortic ulcers because it's not something that we are as familiar with as the surgeons are, but it's something that many of our patients have and is, is one of the aortic emergencies. So a penetrating aortic ulcer is a deep atherosclerotic lesion where there is a focal ulceration of the elastic lamina that extends through the medial layer of the aortic wall. These ulcers are often associated with hematoma formation, and they're most commonly found in areas of high atherosclerotic deposition, which is usually in the descending aorta, which is reported in the literature to be up to 60 to 95% of the time. But they can also be found in the aortic arch and are rarely described in the ascending aorta. In addition to typical atherosclerotic etiologies, penetrating aortic ulcers can also be due to infective, inflammatory, traumatic, or iatrogenic causes. And compared to our patient, people found to have these penetrating aortic ulcers are typically older, usually older than 65 years old, and with extensive atherosclerosis. 
And notably, this penetrating aortic ulcers are a type of acute aortic syndrome and accounts for up to 8% of total acute aortic syndromes. It may present with a spectrum of symptoms, including as an incidental finding on cardiothoracic imaging or a severe chest and back pain like an aortic dissection. And of note, although it is a subtype of aortic syndrome, penetrating aortic ulcers can progress to aortic dissection and rupture. And management of symptomatic penetrating aortic ulcers is similar to management of aortic dissection with indications for surgery, including recurrent pain despite medical treatment, hemodynamic instability, aortic diameter enlargement to greater than 5.5 centimeters, and significant periaortic hemorrhage. And in asymptomatic patients who are hemodynamically stable, management is actually controversial. Some centers support aggressive early surgical intervention, while others opt for more conservative medical management, along with serial surveillance for aortic enlargement. And then to our knowledge, after review of the literature, this association between penetrating aortic ulcer and intraluminal thrombus has not been described. So as both Natasha and Paul mentioned, thrombus formation in the aortic lumen is rare due to this high flow, high pressure arterial location and uh, intraluminal thrombi typically develop in the setting of venous stasis, which we were describing, as well as hypercoagulable state from autoimmune disease or malignancy and endothelial damage, as we discussed as Virchow's triad. So in our patient's case, although we did not identify any hypercoagulable condition, we do suspect that she may have had some unspecified hypercoagulable condition given she actually had additional venous thromboses found on her MRA, which showed thrombi right around the side of her cooling catheter, which was just in place for less than 24 hours. And she also had no atherosclerosis and negative workup for other infectious and inflammatory autoimmune pathology. So ultimately, now the patient is now recovering from surgery on the floor. Natasha, what would you recommend for consideration of ICD for secondary prevention? So based on the 2017 ACC HAHRS ventricular arrhythmia sudden cardiac death guideline, regardless of how we would categorize her in secondary prevention, either ischemic or non-ischemic, in someone who survived a sudden cardiac arrest due to VT or VF, not from reversible causes, an ICD implantation is a class one recommendation, provided that they're expected to have a meaningful survival greater than one year. You know, a classic reversible cause would be VTBF limited to the first 48 hours after an acute MI. We don't really have enough information for her to say that her VF event was definitely due to an acute MI. So, you know, I wouldn't use that as a consideration. The question here is whether we would consider the aortic thrombus and PAU to be a reversible cause that we've now dealt with. The risk of embolization or obstruction of the RCA is gone now, but is there a chance she's at risk of developing this again? I'm not sure. Um, this is where the cardiac MRI is helpful. We've ruled out most structural heart disease and we've identified a scar, which was the delayed hyperenhancement and lack of regional edema. The LG is associated with worse outcomes, including sudden cardiac death and in some studies of primary prevention ICDs, you know, more shocks. So even if we considered the PAU and ascending thrombus as one reversible cause that was addressed, the LGE on cardiac MRI does put her at increased risk. We also didn't identify an active process like myocarditis or recent ischemia or active ischemia on the cardiac MRI that one could argue is a potentially still reversible cause and could be reassessed at some point in the future. So ultimately, this is a shared decision-making discussion with the patient. You know, one other option would be to consider using a wearable cardioverter defibrillator until further information came in to help guide the clinician's recommendation or maybe give the patient more time to consider their options if they were hesitant. If we strongly favored reversible ischemia, active inflammation, a genetic or other systemic cause, that would give us an opportunity to work it up before proceeding with ICD implantation. For her, though, I would recommend a single chamber ICD. Yeah, I think it's hard not to, right? And we ended up talking with the patient and she and her family ultimately did decide to get a single chamber ICD for secondary prevention. And during the hospitalization while she was recovering from her surgery, uh, she did, you know, as I mentioned, had a negative serologic evaluation for both hypercoagulable states as well as malignancy. She underwent endoscopy and colonoscopy for, for microcytosis and iron deficiency anemia, which was negative for cancer evaluation, but she was found to have duodenal ulcers in H. pylori, which they biopsied and she was treated for. She was ultimately discharged on warfarin with a plan for indefinite anticoagulation and close follow-up and malignancy evaluation. So in summary, this was a devastating case for the patient and her family, but a very interesting medical presentation of sudden cardiac arrest, likely due to a complication from a large ascending aortic thrombus attached to a penetrating aortic ulcer. 
Wow, guys, that was such a phenomenal case. And Dan was just texting me, medicine can be so humbling because, you know, as cardiology fellows, we've taken care of all varieties, shapes and sizes of cardiac arrest, but but I hadn't seen one of this particular flavor. So I, I took a lot away and I'm learning a lot from you guys. Thank you so much for bringing us this case and can't wait to have you guys back uh, to do more of this. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. You have really showered us with amazing, amazing knowledge. So thank you. All. Knowledge, not emboli. <laughs> Yeah, no, nah, it's going to go there, guys. And now for the ECPR segment, we'd like to introduce one of our colleagues in, in cardiothoracic surgery and the surgeon who performed the surgery on our patient. This is Dr. Dominic Menya, who's the surgical director of the lung transplant program and the co-director of the cardiac surgery intensive care unit and specializes in taking care of aortic syndromes. Hi, my name is Dominic Bain. I'm a cardiac surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at the Smith Heart Institute Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. I'm delighted to be part of this podcast and discuss acute aortic syndromes in our case. Acute aortic syndrome is a term we use to describe a variety of disorders such as acute aortic dissection, intramural hematoma, and penetrating atherosclerotic aortic ulcer. In the acute setting, these require urgent intervention under most circumstances. My objective today is to discuss briefly each entity associated pathophysiology, lab testing, imaging, diagnosis, management, and outcomes. I'll focus particular attention on penetrating atherosclerotic aortic ulcer as it is relevant to our case. As cardiologists, you'll be faced with many instances of acute chest pain, so I want to highlight the importance of recognizing acute aortic entity as a cause in order to facilitate and establish definitive therapy. Acute aortic dissection is the most common of these syndromes, you must ensure that an acute aortic syndrome is at the top of the differential diagnosis when dealing with acute chest pain. Prompt diagnosis is essential to improve survival and morbidity. Let's talk a bit about subaortic anatomy. The aorta itself is made up of three walls consisting of the inner intimal layer, the medial layer, where you have smooth muscle, elastin, collagen, extracellular matrix. The strongest layer is the outer adventitial layer consisting of connective tissue. This is where the neurovascular tissue resides as well as the vasa visor. Aneurysmal formation of the ascending aorta is a result of cystic medial degeneration, where elastic fiber fragmentation and smooth muscle loss occur. Aneurysmal degeneration can occur due to atherosclerosis, but less common in the ascending aorta. Other causes include valvular abnormalities, such as bicuspid and unicuspid valves, arteriitis, pseudoaneurysms, trauma, aortoaneurylactasia, as well as the genetic tissue disorders, such as Marfan's, Ehlers-Danlos, and Louis Dietz. The most common acute aortic syndrome is the acute aortic dissection. It's classified in two ways with either the DeBakey or the Stanford classification. The DeBakey classification takes into account the intimal tear location and extent. The Stanford classification, on the other hand, is based purely on involvement of the ascending aorta or not. This is what we commonly refer to as a Stanford type A dissection or type B dissection when a descending aorta is involved past the left subclavian artery. This could also include aortic arch dissections as well. There's also a Spenson classification for acute aortic syndrome, which includes all entities such as classical dissections, IMHs, also known as intramural hematomas, penetrating ulcers, and iatrogenic or traumatic dissections. In terms of presentation, most commonly, acute type A dissection presents with acute onset severe chest pain that may radiate to the back, neck, and abdomen. Depending on the degree of arch vessel or mesenteric vessel involvement, a variety of symptoms may be present, such as stroke, even coma, paralysis, a cold limb, and abdominal pain. These may be evident in laboratory testing, such as elevated creatinine, transaminitis, as well as lactic acidosis. We refer to these as malperfusion syndromes. They often appear to be acute distress, and patients may also be hypertensive and tachycardic. In a setting of pericardial tamponade, Hypotension may be present with other signs of shock. Hypotension can also be seen with new onset severe aortic regurg as well in the setting of coronary ischemia. Nevertheless, do not rely solely on chest pain as a presenting symptoms. Pages they present with symptoms of malperfusion without chest pain being evident have a high index of suspicion. The diagnosis is commonly made with CT scanning of the chest. CT scanning, particularly ECG-gated, is used to aid in reducing the artifact from pulsation of the aortic root and the ascending aorta. Many times when patients present to the emergency department with acute onset chest pain, the CT scan of the chest is ordered to rule out pulmonary embolism and an acute aortic pathology is noted. 
Echocardiography can be useful as well. A transthoracic echo can be performed rapidly, but it's limited in the information it could provide. It can, however, quickly identify dissection flap in the proximal ascending aorta, root, and assess for any valvular insufficiency as well as the ventricular function. A transesophageal echocardiogram, on the other hand, is of much higher quality and highly sensitive and specific for this. Again, a dissection flap, as well as greater detail, the aortic root and coronaries can be seen. Both are able to evaluate any pericardial tamponade as well. The downside is that this procedure requires sedation and is likely not as readily available. A TE is helpful, especially in those patients who have equivocal findings on CT scan when patients are brought in with CKD and image without contrast. Generally, MRI is not used in the acute setting. In the setting of chest pain, most patients will have an EKG, and this is usually nonspecific in most cases. In the setting of an acute dissection or acute aortic pathology, patients do not receive urgent emergent evaluation of their coronaries. The risks of acute aortic pathology outweigh the benefits of imaging the coronaries in this acute setting. It is important that all entities of chest pain are part of your differential, but keep the aorta near the top as time is of the essence. How do we treat these entities? Many of these patients can be very unstable. Approach each one as if you're doing your ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, form a thorough history and physical of fable, focusing on the symptoms, onset as well as the history of aortic pathology. Perform a neurologic evaluation and vascular exam. Assess for any pulse deficits. Assess for any murmurs as well. Family history is very important in these cases. Usually these patients will have a full set of labs, including complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, lactate, and liver function tests. Make sure the patient has a type and cross in anticipation for the operating room. Adequate IV access is essential, as well as invasive hemodynamic monitoring, especially in arterial line. Once a diagnosis is made, it is important to initiate anti-impulse therapy, controlling both the heart rate and blood pressure. This is generally achieved with fast-acting IV beta blockers, followed by afterload reduction in that cardipine and sodium nitroprusside. For the most part, type B aortic dissections, those with entry tears and those occurring after the subclavian are treated in the same fashion with anti-impulse therapy. We will not discuss the management of acute type B dissections as part of this discussion. Once our diagnosis has been made and anti-impulse therapy has been initiated, patients should be brought promptly to the operating room. Often patients come as transfers and are brought directly to the operating room. For the operative procedure in the sake of this discussion, I will not get into great detail regarding the nuances of surgical approach for acute aortic syndromes. All in all, it is important to safely get the patient out of the operating room. Let's focus our attention now to one of the other acute aortic syndromes, intramural hematomas. If you remember the anatomy we discussed, the vasovasorum, also known as the vessel of vessels, lie within the aortic wall, and when we have rupture of these, this results in an intramural hematoma. The presentation is often almost identical to a type A dissection, and an image will be obtained and reveal an intramural hematoma. Upwards of nearly 50% of these can progress to a dissection. Nevertheless, treatment is generally the same. What about a penetrating atherosclerotic aortic ulcer? This acute aortic syndrome is an ulcerating atherosclerotic lesion which ulcerates or penetrates elastic lamina to the media with hematoma formation. These lesions progress in stages beginning with an atherosclerotic ulcer within the intimal layer. They can then progress and penetrate into the medial wall with surrounding hematoma. The aortic wall will appear thickened as well. These are more commonly seen in descending aorta and less common in the ascending aorta. They tend to be seen in older patients with large burdens of atherosclerosis. In the initial phases, they're usually asymptomatic and found incidentally. In later stages, presentation is similar to acute dissections with severe, sudden chest pain radiating to the back. Depending on the degree of hematoma formation and its extension, this can lead to an acute aortic dissection. There have been cases as well where the hematoma has led to growth of the saccular aneurysm. A rupture can also be seen. Most clinicians would suggest surgical replacement of the aorta in the setting of Patients having persistent pain, hemodynamic instability, expanding aortic diameters, and significant periaortic hematoma. We advise surgical intervention be undertaken in these cases. Some authors, however, advocate for conservative management given the variability and oftentimes benign course. Each patient should be individualized. Given that a majority of the patients are elderly and may have other comorbidities, surgical intervention may be high risk. Our case was a young 46-year-old female presented with a sudden cardiac death. She presented to the emergency department 
with ventricular fibrillation. She was defibrillated twice and had a return of spontaneous circulation. The CG following this revealed sinus tachycardia with no signs of ST elevation in mind. A workup was ensued for causes of sudden cardiac death, which included an echocardiogram CT scan to rule out a pulmonary embolism, as well as a CTA for coronary arteries. A workup was unremarkable except for findings of a mobile hypodense lesion up to 1.5 centimeters in the anterior aspect of the ascending aorta, just above the RCA. Patient was admitted to the intensive care unit, monitored, cooled, and then recovered. An MRA was performed, and this MRA could not rule out a dissection. Additionally, findings on the MRA revealed a scar to the basal inferior wall. If you've had a first glance at this MRA, there was concern for acute type A dissection on a few of these images, given this large thrombus located in the ascending aorta, which sort of mirrored what would look like a dissection flap. However, during her workup as well, she had a cooling catheter placed in the lower extremity. A large DVT was noted and identified along the course of this cooling catheter. Putting the picture together, given the extensive clot burden and what we presume to be this large mobile thrombus in the ascending aorta that likely led to her sudden cardiac arrest, we proceeded with operative intervention in this case. Patient was taken to the operating room and the aorta was cross-clamped, the heart was arrested, and the aorta was opened. Upon opening of the aorta, a large, mobile thrombus was noted. This was grossly adhered to the anterior ascending aorta, just above the right coronary artery. The nidus appeared to be an atherosclerotic plaque, which resembled beginnings of a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. We decided at that point to make an elliptical incision and resect this area of the aorta. We then used a bovine pericardial patch to replace that area of the aorta and then closed it primarily. Following repair, patient was weaned from bypass uneventfully with a normal sinus rhythm and good biventricular function. Her postoperative course was uneventful as well. Pathology revealed extensive mucoid medial degeneration with atherosclerotic plaque of the aortic ulcer, a confirmed thrombus. The intraortic thrombus measured approximately 3.5 centimeters in length. Intraluminal thrombus, as part of the spectrum of penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers, not very well described. It is rare to see a thrombus formation in the aortic lumen. This is an area of high pressure, high flow, and it's in an arterial location. Given the findings of a large DVT in the lower extremity, this patient was evaluated for a hypercoagulable disorder. And that is important in these cases, especially the atypical nature of such. In conclusion, we had an atypical case of a known aortic thrombus for a penetrating ulcer that led to a sudden cardiac arrest that presented as VF with MRI findings showing scar in the right coronary artery distribution. It is likely that this clot either mechanically obstructed or embolized to the RCA osteum at the time. These mechanisms would explain these findings of the necrosis. When evaluating acute chest pain, and sudden cardiac arrest, keep your differential broad and think about acute aortic syndromes as one of the causes. Thank you for your time. I just made a major faux pas. Hold on, give me a second. <laughs> Do you see that? Oh my gosh. Okay, okay, okay. So it basically... I guess, <laughs> oh my God. Oh, this is the worst. Yeah, okay. the worst. You see what I did? Okay, so Amit just said that you guys sound so good. And then I was texting to Amit that, okay, anyways, let me let, let me get this case rolling, but you, you guys can see me. You're lucky the video's off. I'm beat red and I'm like sweating. <laughs> I just ran a marathon. <laughs>